Father, I ask for your help to bring this message concerning our airship of the world. Because I need you and we need you. And because this truth is too good to believe on our own, we don't have the strength to believe it. It will fly so far over us that we'll not be caught up into it if you don't catch us up into it. And it will leave us stuck where we are if you don't link it to our souls and carry us aloft with it. It is lofty. It is great. It is unspeakably beyond words. So I feel very inadequate to make it plain. And yet you are adequate. You are my adequacy now. And I trust in you for myself and for these friends. Come and do this great work and make this truth known and loved and may it make us mighty in the Spirit. Win hearts, I pray, and minds for yourself, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, how sad it was. It was so sad to open the paper on Saturday and read the lead editorial in the Star Tribune. Such a sadness. They are very upset about uh, the Southern Baptists. Saturday was Rosh Hashanah. Rosh in Hebrew means head, and Ha is the, and Shana is year, head of the year, the Jewish New Year. It's a high season. And uh, the Southern Baptists, led by the Board of International Missions, I know the Jerry Rankin, the head of that board, and know his heart, and it is not what they made it out to be. Passed a resolution and encouraged all Southern Baptists, all 14 million of them, to pray during Rosh Hashanah that Jewish people would believe in Jesus and be saved. Now, this does not go over well in the Jewish community. And so this editorial uh, suggests that is pure arrogance. And they quote Abraham Heschel to this effect, Christians must abandon the idea that Jews must be converted. This idea, Heschel said, is, quote, one of the greatest scandals in history, unquote. Now, the reason this is so sad is because it so distorts the true biblical and historic teaching concerning the relationship between Israel and the Church of Jesus Christ. There is absolutely no doubt, and we must admit it with tears, that Christendom, and I use the word advisedly, the people of Christendom have treated Jews badly, very badly and have fostered horrendous anti-Semitism from time to time. And the resentments and the offense in the Jewish community historically is almost insuperable for that reason. And we should not 
uh, find that hard to understand. But I repudiate that anti-Semitism for the same reason that I repudiate this editorial. Because it is such a distortion of New Testament Christianity. Now, why is this relevant for today's message? The reason it's relevant is because I'm going to assume as a foundation in today's message, Paul's teaching that Gentiles, most of us in this room would be in that category, that Gentiles who trust in Messiah Jesus... You know the word Christ is Christos in Greek, and Christos is Greek for Mashiach, and Mashiach is Messiah. And therefore, every time you say the word Christ, you mean Jewish Messiah. All Gentiles who trust in Messiah Jesus, Jesus Messiah, are true Jews. They become heirs of the promise of Abraham... And true circumcision. We've seen this. I won't develop and argue for it anymore. I just state it because it's all over the New Testament. But I will give this part of the foundation again. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises and all of the hopes of Israel. He is yes to all of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 He is the Messiah. He himself said, though, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? I am. Mark 14, 61. To reject this Jesus Messiah is to reject God the Father. And to confess this Jesus Messiah is to be reconciled to the God of the universe. Now here's the verse. That would be the centerpiece of any response that I send, and I do hope I get a chance to send it this week to the Tribune. 1 John 2, 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. I'll say it again. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In other words, Jews who reject Jesus, their Messiah, forfeit the promises made to Abraham. And Gentiles who accept Jesus, the Messiah, Inherit the promises made to Abraham. Now, this teaching was not created by John, and it wasn't created by Paul. It wasn't created by the apostles as a later accretion to the simple religion of Jesus. Jesus said these things, and he said them more powerfully, more dreadfully, more colorfully, more frighteningly than any apostle ever said them. So let me give you one illustration. And this is such a crucial illustration because the subtitle of the editorial on Sunday was Christians and Jews sharing the same table. That's true. 
That's true. But listen to the way Jesus says it, which is light years from from the way they said it. Matthew 8, 10 to 12, there's a centurion. He came to Jesus wanting help, healing for his servant. And uh, he didn't even want Jesus to come under his roof. He just said, say the word, my servant will be healed. Jesus was stunned at this man's faith. And he said this about this Gentile. This is Matthew eight ten. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west. That's you and me. Many will come from east and west and recline at table. There it is. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, a Gentile from east or west, from America or Africa or Indonesia or Kosovo or Siberia or Germany or Sweden or China, a a Gentile who believes in Jesus as the Messiah will sit at table with Abraham and share the inheritance of the Jews. And... A Jew who does not believe in Jesus will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was a sad misrepresentation of the real situation. And what Jesus taught in those verses, the apostles taught everywhere. They taught it all over the place. Gentiles become true Jews by faith in Jesus the Messiah. And Jews forfeit their Jewishness when they forfeit their Messiah and reject Him. It's a profound misunderstanding to say or even to suggest that to teach these things is an arrogant presumption that Christianity simply teaches Jews, abandon your heritage. That's the way it was portrayed. Christianity, when it does evangelism, is arrogantly saying, scrap your whole heritage and take our heritage. Well, you can get agreeers that way, but you can't represent truth that way. Here's the Bible way to say it. Salvation is from the Jews. John 4.22 The promises made to Abraham are the root that supports all salvation. And without it, there is no salvation. The only way for a Gentile to be saved is to become an heir of Abraham. Trusting his Messiah. 
The Jewish heritage is my only hope. Judaism is so central to Christianity. There's no salvation without it. And Jesus Christ is so central to Judaism, there's no salvation without him. It isn't arrogant for a Christian to look a Jew in the eye and say, we have no hope without your heritage, and you have no hope without your Messiah. That's not arrogant. So the Southern Baptist Initiative should be called something other than arrogant. It should be called love. Because 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So tell me, just tell me simply, a child knows this, if that's true, what is love? I'll say it again. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life forever. What is love? To gloss that over and say, let's just all go to church together. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. So today, the basis of my message is the great truth that we Gentiles, hopeless, without Christ, cut off from the promises, alienated. As Ephesians 2 says, we Gentiles who believe on Jesus, are fellow heirs with Abraham. Fellow heirs with Abraham. And Jews, and they live all around us, and they're our friends, who do not receive Jesus as their Messiah, will not inherit the world, but will perish where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the teaching of the greatest Jew that ever lived, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Let's go to the text. Romans four thirteen, The promise to Abraham or to his descendants that we should... that he would be heir of the world. Underline that. That's what I want to talk about this morning. The promise that Abraham or his descendants would be heir of the world was not through law. We talked about that last week. But through the righteousness of faith. I'm not going to rehearse that. For if those who are of the law are heirs, that is, heirs of the world, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. So the the third point from last week, which now becomes the only point for this week, is Abraham and his descendants, including those... Gentiles who have the faith of Abraham are all heirs of the world. And I want to know for you and me this morning what that means. 
Do you believe as you sit there that you are an heir of the world? And what do you mean? And what difference will it make this afternoon if you are an heir of the world? Well, here's the first question I have to ask in relation to that. Where'd Paul get that summary of the promise? You see there in verse 13, it says, The promise to Abraham, and then he defines it this way, that he would be heir of the world. Where'd he get that? It's not in the Old Testament. Not in those words. You can't find anywhere in the Old Testament where it says, I will make you an heir of the world. Those words aren't used in the Old Testament for the promise made to Abraham. Well, where did Paul get this idea? Why did he use this word, heir of the world, to summarize the promise to Abraham? And let me suggest a train of thought that I think Paul may have gone through He looked at the promises that were made and he thought them through to their root and then he connected them to the Messiah, Jesus, who supercharges them with his resurrection. And he concludes, this is a great summary and an an accurate biblical summary of the promise made to Abraham. So let me give you three promises that he looked at, perhaps. Genesis 17, 8. God says to Abraham, I will make... I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Think about this now. I will give you the land of Canaan, which came hundreds of years later into the possession of the Jewish people. I think Paul and Jesus read that and said, Abraham will rise from the dead and become an heir of Canaan, the promised land. Because it says, I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. That implies huge things about the nature of Abraham's inheritance as one alive and risen from the dead, never to die again, coming into the inheritance of at least part of the world. Second promise, Genesis 17, 7. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. We fly over these things. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. What does it mean when God Almighty looks you in the face and says, I will be God to you? (laughs) Yes. Do it. Do it. Be God for me. When Jesus read that and heard that and ruminated on that, do you know the the inference that he drew out of that? I'll read it to you from Matthew twenty two thirty two. He took the words from the Old Testament, I am the God of Abraham. And this is the comment that he made on it. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Which I take to mean, if I'm your God, you live. You live. 
period. There is no death among the people that I am their God. I'm God. You think I'm going to let the enemy, death, defeat my people? I am God. I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. So when Jesus read it and Paul read it, I will be your God. I will be God to you. They said, this man is coming into an inheritance, not for a period of a hundred years, but for a period of a hundred millennia of ages of years. Which probably has some implications about the scope of his inheritance. Third promise. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. God promises Abraham, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And now listen to this. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In other words, there's coming a day as the history of redemption unfolds when there will be no more enemies against Israel, but they will possess the gate of every enemy, which has huge implications to the extent of their inheritance and where they have free reign in the world. Now, you take those three promises and supercharge them now by pointing out that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is an heir of Abraham and that all the promises of God are yes in him. And then you read the New Testament with Jesus as the supercharger and heir of those three promises. And let me just fill them up for you with three observations. Number one, Jesus is the Lord of all lands and all nations. Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow. And his inheritance, according to Psalm 2.8, is all the nations. So God says to him, God says to his son in Psalm 2.8, ask of me, my son. And I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the world and the earth as your possession. So now we've got the Messiah, the heir of Abraham, possessing all the nations and all the earth. And the only question about you is, do you belong to him? Third or second promise is 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven with regard to this death issue. Will we rise with him? Was Christ the first fruits of the dead bringing us with him out of the tomb? 1 Corinthians 15, 57. God gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now the, the supercharge behind Jesus' words, God is not the God of the dead, is the resurrection of Jesus. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in him, so that all those who are in him, who are the children of Abraham, are swept out of the grave with him to share his inheritance, which includes the whole world and all the nations. And the third promise is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty five. Christ the risen Christ must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished will be death. So the gates of our enemies include the gates of hell 
and we will possess the gates of Hades and we will break them off their hinges and come out of Sheol and the grave and there will be no death anymore among God's people. So they will have an everlasting inheritance, namely the inheritance of the Messiah, namely not just Canaan, but supercharged all the nations and all the geography of the world. So, I hope it's clear that the reason we are heirs of the world is that we are in Christ, who is himself the heir of the world. Galatians 3.29 put it so simply, so wonderfully, so clearly. Here's the way it says. Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ. So ask yourself right now if that's true. Do you belong to Christ? And you do if you're trusting Him. And you don't if you're not trusting Him. But trust Him. Trust Him. So as I finish this sentence, it'll be yours. If you belong to Christ, here are the two consequences. One, then you are Abraham's descendants. Secondly, heirs according to the promise. We become heirs of the world the same way we become descendants of Abraham, namely by being grafted into Christ, the Messiah, the heir of Abraham. And so faith in Christ is the key to becoming both a Jew and the inheritor of the world. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean? If if it's true, if, if all the believers in this room right now are heirs of the world. That someday the world will become yours by inheritance. The world. What does that mean? And what difference should it make today? The best exposition I know of is Paul's own in 1 Corinthians 3.21. You can turn there with me if you want. And let's let Paul give a brief exposition of his own claim that Christians will be heirs of the world. What does he mean? Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 3.21. It's so interesting because this is born out of a very practical, nitty-gritty thing where there's boasting going on in the church. And one is saying, I'm of Paul. Another saying, I'm of Apollos. And Paul is so put out by this that he says, would you stop boasting in men? And then he gives this as an argument, a support for why they should stop boasting. 1 Corinthians 3, 21, end of the verse. So then let no one boast of men, for all things belong to you. He could have argued exactly the opposite way. And it would have been true. He could have said, would you stop boasting in men because you and they are both nobodies in yourselves. So where is boasting? It is excluded. By what principle? Demonstrations of the law and how great the teachers and we are? Or by faith, which is a childlike reliance on God for helpless, for help when we're helpless. He could have argued like that, and he didn't. Here's the way he argued. 
Let no one boast of men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, next word is the key, or the world. That's why I call it an exposition of Romans 4.13. Or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And why? How? Because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So the first thing to notice here is that the reason all things are ours is because all things belong to Christ and we belong to Christ and therefore they are ours. And the second thing to notice here is that it's all things. It's all things. Hebrews 1-2 says Christ has been appointed the heir of all things. And if Christ has been appointed the heir and we belong to Christ, we are in Christ, then all things belong to us. And this is so wonderful, it defies description with human words. And so I have prayed for you, and we prayed for you downstairs, and I have prayed for myself, because there are truths in the Bible that are so stunning, they are so wonderful, that when you read them, you feel like they are so far out there that my little problem here has no connection to that at all. And so we just don't even connect. We don't even connect. We'll walk out of this room, some of you, if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, and you will just whistle through the day with no recollection of what was said here and no sense of being stunned by the fact that you were an heir of the world. If I had a check for a million dollars here, and I could with a legal counsel show you that it is made out to you from an account filled with a million dollars and Monday morning is all it takes and a signature for it to be yours, I guarantee you the rest of this day would be different. (laughs) Test whether you believe this because that is nothing, 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 nothing compared to what I'm saying. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see, hearts to feel, minds to get around this truth. That in a very short time, in a very short time, you will come into your inheritance. And it's everything. And so we gasp and we say, how can this be? How how can it be Christ's and how can it be mine? If it's Christ's, it's Christ's, but it's not mine. And let me give you an analogy here from Revelation 3.21 that might make it even harder to believe, but that's good. We need to have our stomachs punched every now and then by the truth and the breath taken out of us so that we can stop fooling around with Christianity and decide whether we believe it or not. In Revelation uh, 3.21, if I can find it here, Hmm. There it is. It says, Jesus talking to the church, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, picture this. Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, heir of all things, rises from the dead. 
teaches for 40 days, ascends to the right hand of God, and he sits on the throne of God. Meaning, co-ruler, creator, owner of the world. And this text says, to the one who overcomes in this little teeny world of ours, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I sat on my father's throne. You will sit on the throne of the universe with Christ. He in his father's lap, you in his lap, scepter in all three hands, ruling the universe. Millions of you. So it shouldn't be hard for us to grasp that if we can be co-rulers of the angels and the universe, we can be co-owners. And yet it boggles our minds and we say, well, how can this be? Because how can, how can I be the heir and you be the heir? I mean, when a father dies and sons divide the inheritance, one son gets the dining room table and the other gets the kitchen table. You can't both have both tables. So how can how can we inherit the whole world? You get it? I get it? You get it? You get it? You get the whole world? You get the whole world? You get the whole world? And you get the whole world? Who gets the whole world? And this is worthy of many days of contemplation because the implications here are so sweet. Think of it. If our union with Christ is so profound and so deep that we will in Him be co-owners with Him and co-rulers with Him of the whole world, the implication is that among ourselves there will be such a unity and such a harmony And such a togetherness that there will be no difficulty in your having it all and my having it all. Because we are going to be so happy in giving that I will be able to look you in the face and say, Nothing makes me happy than to give you the whole world. And you will look me in the face and say, Nothing makes me happier than to give you the whole world. Take it. No, you take it. And we will have absolute wisdom to figure out how you do that. Just like a husband and a wife when they are walking in the Spirit today, have no difficulty sharing a house when both their signatures are on the deed co-owned. We will manage. And it will be glorious because it will mean that there's a kind of sweetness that has come into the people of God that has made them love each other at levels we've never yet loved each other. And I would just insert the parenthesis here. This fall as we begin, may the Lord grant that that future reality sweep back into this age on this church that we love like that. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Let us love each other like that. You know, one of the ways that Jesus portrayed this reality 
was in Luke 16, 12, where he said, If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, Now, he's talking about all your money, your cars, your CDs, your clothes, your house, your toys. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Let me paraphrase. Right now, you own nothing. Everything you drive, every button you push, every food you mix, every coat or dress you put on belongs to God. And the dictate over your lives as a steward, trustee, manager, administrator is use my goods for my glory. Therefore, how you dress, how you drive, how you eat, how you live, where you live, how you do all you do, and how you handle the stuff of this world is yours. And I do it for your glory. And Jesus says, if you don't know how to manage that, another's, who's going to give you your own? As though... There's coming a day in which an inheritance will be made over to us that will cause us to feel like ownership in this world was as nothing compared to ownership in the age to come. Things are going to serve you. You think right now your car serves you? You think your computer serves you? You think your house serves you? You think your clothes serve you? Well, they do a little bit because God has ordained that His goods serve you. But someday, they are going to serve you so differently, so much more deeply and greatly and longly that it will be as though you never owned a thing. And now, you discover for the first time what it means to be an heir of the world and to have things that are your own to the glory of God. Well, let me close by simply asking this question and giving you a couple of bullet answers. What difference does that inheritance make for you now? As you leave this room and enter the week, And here are a few. Let it fill you with indomitable joy. Romans 5.2 We exult, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God's glory is going to fill the earth and we're going to be an inheritor of that earth and the glory of God will be our portion and no one can take it away from us or separate us from the love of God in Christ. So let it fill you with indomitable joy. If right now you feel like this is going right over your head and there is no emotional registering with this, would you please, please take my counsel and today sometime and regularly hereafter 
so meditate on the Word and so plead with God that it would become real to you because your life hangs on this. Don't coast. Second implication, let it make you secure and strong in suffering. I have wrestled this week with the question, when we suffer small things and big things, and some of you are suffering very big things and some of you are suffering little things, do thoughts like this really make any difference? Thoughts that someday, soon or or far, I'm going to inherit the universe. Does that make any difference? It makes a difference. It makes a big difference. Because, here's the way I picture it, I have two images in my mind. I have the image of a of winds and waves beating against me and, and me beginning to lose my footing. And that happens emotionally to us. We feel like I'm shaking, I'm being knocked, and I'm, I'm, if I lose my footing, I have no idea what's out there in the water. And at that moment, these kinds of glorious truths become granite under our feet, and we stand there, and it doesn't change the wind, and it doesn't change the waves. But oh, what a difference to feel it down there. To feel it down there. Makes all the difference in the world whether the waves are going to drown you or whether you've got a rock under your life. And the other image I have in my mind, oh, God did a great thing in the first service, which I don't have time to tell you about, but somebody... God gave them this image this week at a crisis in their lives and they were absolutely split wide open for Jesus when I used it this morning. This, this, the, the image of a solar system. And we feel like sometimes the planets of our lives are getting out of gravitational pull and it's starting to wobble and they might just sling out there into who knows where and our lives just absolutely come apart at the seams and our brains just explode in our heads because of the tension or the suffering or the uncertainties of our lives. And at that moment I say, oh God, would you take this glorious truth that we are heirs of the world and make it like the massive sun at the center of the solar system of our lives, pulling, pulling, pulling all the orbiting pieces of our lives back into their proper place so that they don't sling off into the universe and leave us ripped to shreds. Oh, put it at the center of your lives. I really do believe with all my heart and testify from my own experience and some middle-of-the-night wrestlings this week that it makes a difference. Even if it doesn't change the waves. And third, venture something on this God because of this hope. Venture something. Venture something on God. Do something new. Be a little bit crazy. Because if in fact yours is the world, that in just a very short time, death and then joy and wealth and glory forever and ever, wouldn't that make you a little bit crazy? 
I mean, if you're not a little bit crazy, you don't believe the promises of God. The reason we fit into America so easily and just go along with our half-baked, low-yield, no-satisfying satisfactions is because we don't believe it. That's why I'm pleading with God, get it in, Lord. Come on, come on, get it down so that we walk out of here saying, my God, I'm an heir of the world. It doesn't matter what they say at work. It doesn't matter what they write in the Tribune. I will inherit the universe in a very short time. Let me loose. Let me free. Let me do something crazy. Let me sell my business and go overseas. Let me become a part of a small group. And risk somebody asking me a personal question. (laughs) Or sign up for one of the remaining six slots in children's ministries and discover, I can do it. Be crazy. Don't just coast anymore. Don't just keep on doing what you're doing. Change it. Change it. For Jesus' sake. Because you've got everything. You cannot lose. You cannot lose. Go to Sudan. Quit school and go to Turkey. That's a novel idea that Ben had. For which... I would not trade the world. And lastly, give God glory. Because Abraham grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that God was able to do what he promised. Rejoice in hope. Be secure in affliction. Be venturesome in ministry. Crazy. Give glory to God. Let's pray. It's because we are heirs of the world, Father. Would you come and make it real? Make us crazy, I beg of you. Aliens, exiles in this world, not at home, waiting eagerly for the appearing of our great King Jesus who will transform this lowly body into a body like his, fit to inherit the glory of God. Would you go and be a little bit crazy this week? You're dismissed.